Hello and welcome to the Hoosie Podcast with me, Phil. And on this special edition of the podcast, uh, we are here to celebrate the launch today, or say release today rather, of the Doctor Who Target Storybook. And uh, I'm very pleased to say I'm joined by one of the authors of this book, Beverly Samford. Beverly, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Phil. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm uh, excited to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I'm just glad to get uh, someone connected to, to the book um, on the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so, lovely to be asked. I'm thrilled. Excellent. Excellent. So um, just how exciting was it um, to have your your story released into the into the big wide world today? It was pretty cool. Um, I've been waiting quite a while. Obviously, the, the book's been in the works for a while. Um, so we've been building up to it and I was able to tease the cover and all that kind of stuff. But I think to have it actually come out today is quite a moment. It does feel like, a, a, people always say a book birthday. It really does feel like a birthday. <laughs> it's quite weird. It's very surreal. I don't think it will really sink in until I see it. You know, if I go into Waterstones or something like that or Forbidden Planet and see it on the shelf, I think that's when you kind of go, wow, you know, we've we've all contributed to something really big exactly exactly so um obviously um for people who don't know at home you've uh, the story you've written for is uh, called pain management yes um and it's a 12th doctor story it is yes how exciting what a, what a lucky one to get i think i know i know so did you get to choose which doctor to write for or were you sort of no a, a i was allocated i was allocated my doctor i was um basically told which doctor it was and then asked to pitch a story so there was no room for moving right on that so I just literally got given Pete and said, can you pitch a story for him? I was like, OK, you might have to go back and watch a little bit of it again just to remind myself all the things I loved about him. Yeah. But actually, it turned out that I, I did think it would be really hard. I thought, I, I thought I'd have a probably better job writing for one of the other doctors. Mm. But as it turns out, he's an absolute dream to write for. Well, that, that was a bit of a boon for you then, wasn't it? <laughs> it, was, it was very lucky. And actually, just all of it was really enjoyable to just, I think, with, with writing, sometimes you'll struggle with a story or an idea, but with something like that, when you're gifted a character that you know and love so much already, it mm. kind of, it doesn't really feel like work. It's it's just fun. Until the panic sets in. Exactly. Before that, it's fun. Exactly. Now, we're not going to um, spoil the story for any for anybody here, yeah. um, mainly, um, because we, we, this podcast doesn't doesn't entertain spoilers. Um, and plus no, fact, me neither. And I, and I want to read it for myself anyway so i have my copy sitting in front of me so uh, <laughs> so i can't i can't wait to get stuck into it but um so i mean how how long ago did you get the call to do this um, i think it was around i was having a look at it, i think it's march or april so not actually that long ago it feels like a long time ago mm. but it, it actually isn't it's only half a year and the turnaround's quite quick on things like this um publishing can be quite a fast turnaround sometimes anyway but you don't have the luxury of maybe say having an idea about a story and writing it and then sending it off it's very different when you're commissioned to do it so you yeah. just have to work to the deadlines you're given um so it was quite quick but they're only short stories again so you really shouldn't have too much of a, of a panic to to get them turned in on time so uh, had you sort of been um I'm, I'm assuming you are you are a fan of doctor who um for my entire life, for I entire think. life yeah okay. well come on my, to that. i was basically born a doctor who fan oh right okay same here so we'll, we'll come on to that later um so I, I, being a Doctor Who fan, I'm, I'm assuming that you must have been formulating um, or had been formulating sort of Doctor Who stories in your mind for years anyway. I think so. And it's funny enough, every time I speak to anybody else who writes for Who, we all kind of say the same things. We always say, oh, I had this, you know, this made this make a great Who story or oh, I wish I could write this for the Doctor. So you do, I think, kind of even unconsciously have a bit of a store of ideas in your head for it. Because I think if you're a writer and, and a fan of it, it's almost impossible not to. 
Yeah, yeah. So, was there any particular doctor in in mind, or is that you were sort of formulating ideas for before this? Yeah, I think. I do you know. I think what happens is, as each new doctor comes along, you just think of things that would suit that the way that they play the role. And I think I'd always wanted to write for the eleventh. Mm-hmm. Definitely, always wanted to write for the eleventh. Um, I, I didn't think about writing for who when I was a kid. I think I just enjoyed it. And I don't think I thought about writing for it again until probably it came back on air. And certainly for the 10th Doctor, I wanted to write for him because he was great. He was just so much fun. I always thought there was great stories you could come up with for him. So, But I don't think it was probably until I started being a writer and having books out there that I really thought maybe I could have a crack at this. Maybe I could do it. Okay, so so before we sort of talk about sort of how you got into writing to you mm. know to, to begin with, um, I mean, what was there? Um, I mean, what was it about the Matt Smith theory that you particularly wanted to to write for? I just always really liked that Doctor. I just I loved how he would. I always felt that he ran the whole route of all the Doctors all in one so well, and he was so changeable throughout his journey in it basically there was just so much room i think to do things with them i think i just really wanted to write for matt smith, matt smith yeah <laughs> yeah yeah we had a little bit of a uh, sort of uh, pre-recording conversation that we were talking about that we amy did. and rory uh, that that particular matt smith um era so yeah it, it was a good it was a good era actually but yeah. I, I think if you're i mean i know everyone's different but for me you kind of love them all and you, you the, the great thing about here is that you'll watch one season or one story and you think oh i've just remembered why i love this so much and then you'll watch a different doctor and a different story and you'll think oh i've just remembered why i love this one so much so i think you kind of love them all because they're all the same character anyway yes yes you I- have to love them all i think i find it really weird when people say oh i really hated that one and though i love that it it, it makes reactions in people. It makes people feel something strongly about it. Either way, I think I think I will always love all of them because they're all special. They're all parts of the same character. Exactly, and I, I think that's the beauty of the of the show as well. There might be one particular episode or story you don't particularly enjoy, but yeah. there's always something else to come along. Yes, which you which you which you will enjoy. You know that, that's and that's what, the beauty of it. It's yeah. that if it, one doesn't resonate with you, another one will. There's always going to be one. That's the whole point of the show. I think that's, exactly. that's what's lovely about it. Precisely. So, um, so when when did you sort of first become a Doctor Who fan? Then how how um, you said you were, you were born a Doctor Who fan? Yeah, I can give you my earliest memories. Actually, I, I know that I when I was born, uh, John was obviously the Doctor, mm-hmm. um, but my Doctor was was Peter, very definitely. And in fact, I when I first got the call to do this. Um, one of my family said to me, oh, you know, you, you loved Peter Davidson. You really loved Peter Davidson. And I do remember him being kind of a first crush when I was probably around five or six. Right, OK. And I thought he was wonderful. But my, my earliest memory of that is, is Black Orchid. That's the first thing I ever remember seeing. And I was absolutely petrified. I thought it was really scary. Do you know what? Not a lot of people like Black Orchid. I love I'm, it. I've heard this. I love Black Orchid. I've heard this so many times. I know it's, it's quite a slow burn of an episode, a uh, story rather, but it's it was terrifying to me when I was yeah. small. I mean, I, I love it because it's it hasn't got a sci-fi bent to it. It's almost like you could you almost say it's almost like a pure historical in a in a strange yes. way. Yeah, that's that's it why is, I like it. It's like a historical it. jaunt. It's it's great. Yeah. So, no, I uh, loved it. And then that that one and Androzani, I always remember. I loved Androzani. I still love. It. It's probably my favourite of his era now. I'll say that's probably always along vote, with everybody else. Yeah, exactly. So it's, right. it's always voted the most popular Doctor Who story. Out it's once. amazing, though. Isn't it is it? amazing. It's, what an episode! It is. It's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Robert Holmes is 
one of his better stories, best stories, I think, actually. Yeah. I think all his stories are great. But uh, so, um, so anyway, let's sort of move away from sort of Doc Two for uh, for a moment. Um, mm. So let's go, go into sort of how did you sort of get involved in writing? I mean, what I mean was that something you've always wanted to to do, or did you sort of yeah. fall into it by accident? No, I've all I've written since I was a kid, and um, when I was small, I would just find ways to write. So I would write poetry or stories or scripts or things like that. Mm. Um, and I didn't, I think I always wanted it as a career, but I, I never really thought about how I would do that until maybe about 15 years ago. I went freelance um, just for my day job. I'm a writer by day anyway, just in copywriting and stuff. Mm. And I joined a course. I went to the City Lit in London and joined a course for writing children's books. And that's kind of where it started. And I'd been working um, with a company called Renaissance Learning on doing these quizzes about children's books. Yeah. And that had reminded me how much I loved books and how much I wanted to write. And then I went and did this course and thought, you know what, well, actually, I could do it. It's You kind of almost feel like it's something you can't achieve because you feel like it's quite far away from you if, if you're not doing it already. But it's actually, it's it's very good to do. It's, it's really good for you to write anyway, I think. So so did you find sort of like story ideas and uh, prose? Or, or, I always have story ideas. That's the curse of a writer. They're was, just everywhere. I was going to say, did, did, it, did it that sort of come easily to you? I mean, yeah. It, yeah. So is there too point? much. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of like when you've, um, during the course of your writing career, have you sort of like, you always hear about that writer's block thing. Has, has that ever yes. happened to you? Yeah, that's happened. That usually happens when you've got a deadline or a commission, to be honest. That, that never happens any other time. It's always that thing where you'll have a thousand ideas when you don't have anyone to write for. Mm. Um, and as soon as somebody needs you to write something, your brain freezes over. And that's it's just common. It happens to everybody. Um, and you just need to go for a walk and have a cup of tea and a bit of cake and come back to it. That's always a good... Or go and watch Doctor Who for a bit and then come back. <laughs> that's always I, a good thing I to like do. I like the cake idea, actually. <laughs> always cake. Cake's really important. I, I put that quite a lot on my Instagram things. There's nearly always cake involved with my writing somewhere. <laughs> excellent, excellent. But yeah, no, there's, 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 I think the, the curse is always that there are too many ideas, I think, and there's not enough time to write them or not enough homes to put them in. Yeah. So I mean, is it sort of, sort of um, a case you have to sort of sort of filter out those ideas in, in your mind yeah. so, so what's they called uh, the, the Sherlock Holmes mind palace you sort of yes. fold them away somewhere yeah you have to find them. when I write everything I'm a big believer in notebooks like most other writers I know we have hordes and hordes of stationery um and I write everything down when I think of it and then it's a case of going back to it. especially if you write something down you know in the middle of the night and then in the morning you'll look at it and think why on earth did I write that down what on earth does that mean and some way you'll filter through there was an idea in there mm. but it's trying to work out what's usable and what's not really so is, is it a sort of a, a struggle when you when you have to sort you might have sort of as you're writing the your, your story um and you think that i really like that bit but it's not working how how do you sort of deal with sort of trying to sort of like self-discipline really to, to remove that yes. bit out um the first thing to do is to always just keep writing through the fog so if you are if you especially if you have a commission and you know which is again as i said when you quite often get your writer's block because it likes to get in the way like that um you have to kind of just be able to step away from it for a bit and 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 look at what's not working and if something's really not working in your writing then there might be a good reason for that so if you're you're writing a script for example and your second act isn't working there might be a really good reason for that it might be that you haven't plotted it well actually a lot of big mistakes i find in my writing are just down to bad plotting in the first place so how many many sort of self-drafts do you go through yourself before you submit to your publisher you know, it depends. I'm quite lucky. I do a lot of my working out in my head first. Mm-hmm. Um, for ages, I'll just think it'll all just sit in my head and then I'll write my notes down and I've, I've got better at writing down my story 
beats, you know, my points at which something should happen now. So I'm quite lucky. It only takes a couple at the moment, but then most of my books have been quite short. So I've been really lucky on that front. They haven't needed an awful lot of work. So you haven't you haven't sort of reached that sort of Lord of the Rings style tone. No, I mean <laughs> I, I think I think my life would be very different if I had to do something of that size. I think there would be less cake and, and a lot less social media if I got something that big. Exactly. Um, you'd, you mean you? I have a, such a huge respect for people that write levels of that. Um, sorry, novels of that length. I mean, yeah. it's incredible what they do. I have friends that do it, and they're just amazing. To be honest, the, the dedication and commitment they put into doing that is is something else. So, sort of, how, how would you sort of? Um... How do you describe yourself as, as an author? What, is there a particular style of book you like to write or, or is it a, um, it's any sort of genre you can sort of turn your hand to? I think so far, I've written for, only for children so far and they've all turned out to be kind of horror or um, like social themes, like, you know, common things happening in, in the social arena that are important. Yeah. So I, I think if I'd thought about what I was doing, I thought I was going into write, when I first started my children's writing course, I thought I was going into write really hard hitting, heavy YA novels or romances yeah. and things like that. And it actually came out quite differently. I discovered that I really liked writing adventures. I really liked writing for sort of below 12 years old, so middle yeah. grade books. I loved writing adventures. Um, I loved writing about sports. I liked all these different things I didn't know I'd write for. So I guess I can kind of want to write for everything really. I don't think I want to just be in one genre. Because I know you're a big F1, Formula One fan, aren't you? I work in Formula One as well. So, oh, yeah, wow. I'm a huge okay. fan and I work in it as well, which is really lucky. Oh, and I have, I've had, had for, a, for a while, I've had a Formula One children's series in progress, but yeah. I haven't actually done anything with it yet. Oh, wow. So you have written, so was it... Um... The World of Formula One Wow Facts, haven't you? Yes, that was a yeah. non-fiction. That was for my publisher, who also published um, my first three YA books as well. So they mm. just wanted a couple of non-fictions. And they, I'd never done that before. I'd read a lot for my job, but I hadn't ever tried writing any. And they were really good fun, actually. Yeah, so how, 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 how different is it to sort of, um, obviously, you come up with the story, but this is just sort of coming up with facts. I mean, how much um, research did you have to put in for Loads. Like they, to be fair, they took more work than any of my fictions. And really? I, I, when I took them on, I thought, oh, these will be easy because I know about it. I did one about social media and one about Formula One. And I thought, oh, these will be fine. But yeah. it is, you have to really, and you have to check all your sources and you've got to find plenty of sources to make sure you're absolutely right. Because the last thing you need is your publisher publishing something that's not correct. You don't yeah. want, you know, they're trusting you to do a good job. So, yeah, it, it was a lot of work went into those for such small books. <laughs> but it's kind of, it's a good payoff because you do feel really proud when you feel like you've written you know, it's great writing fiction. Fiction's wonderful, but non-fiction feels slightly different. I suppose because it's educational, you do feel a little bit different. Bit it different, is hard yeah. work, though. It is yeah, hard it work. it must be. It must be. So, well, what was the, the first book you had published then? My first book was a book called The Wishing Doll, which is mm. a horror that I wrote in, I think it came out in October 2014. I think it came out. I might be wrong. I think that was when it came out. And that was the first one. And that was for, bad. they're all for Badger Learning. Yeah. Who are a small publisher in Hertfordshire. And, um... That was quite a lot of who authors have written for them as well, actually, I think. We all kind of go through them at one stage or another. And they're really great at um, taking a punt on new authors. They're really, really good like that. They'll give you a chance to pitch and they'll come back to you and say, great, OK, we'll take you on. And then they work with you quite closely yeah. on new edits to so, um, get the finished product. I was going to say, I mean, how, what did that feel like when your first book hit the bookshelves? Oh, it was ridiculous. Honestly, it, was, it felt ridiculous because, you, it, again, it's really surreal and it's one of those things you kind of don't really think about it until somebody else says it to you so it's it's a strange thing because I think you probably think oh I'm going to be published I'm going to be on the shelves it will feel like something 
yeah. then it doesn't. You kind of go, well, that's that book that I wrote. It's just got a cover on it now. And you're you're proud of it and you're very pleased about it. But it's not until someone else says. Actually, it's usually when, when children talk to you and they say, wow, are you an author? That's amazing. And you think, that is cool. It's it's great. I always wanted to be an author. Now, now I'm doing it. But it, say, it's um, it, you're kind of inside of it. It's a weird thing. Yeah, because I've, I've 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 been sort of working with someone for for a good many years, and he, he uh, left this year to become a writer. He, that's he, fantastic. Yeah, he, he gave up his. Um, he'd been talking about it for years, and he just decided, well, that's it. Um, I haven't got to pay off the mortgage anymore. I don't need to, <laughs> to have this kind of salary now. Um, I'm going to become a writer. So that's what he's gone off and that's done. That's fantastic. Yeah. Good for him. Exactly. I'm so. Is jealous. he enjoying it? He's enjoying it. Yeah, but you should do it too. I should do. Well, if we didn't have two two small uh, <laughs> two small children I'm, to get to get a roof, I don't want to put anybody on the street with my advice. <laughs> wouldn't be good. <laughs> so, um, so I mean, basically, I mean, how difficult is it to 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 break into it? You said that sort of like the you you were given a lot of encouragement and, and help by by the uh, by the publisher, um, but I mean, how difficult is it really to sort of get your eye? you know to get someone to listen to your idea or is that I, I, I always worry about this question it's um it's really different for everybody that's the one thing I will say everybody I know that has written or wants to write or is in the process of writing we're mm. all really really different and we all have our own roots into things um for me I was quite lucky because I'd already been working with this company um working on quizzes for children's books so I already had got to know people in the industry um, and that was how I'd got to know my publisher as well and that was I'd already got to know other children's authors through that and so once you start putting yourself out there and getting to know people it's a lot easier to be in front of the right people and to also know a bit more about who you want to write for or what kinds of things you want to write and the right ways that you have to approach people so it's kind of quite a long journey but I think it's really different for everybody um some people go the classic route and they'll send to an agent or to a publisher and they'll get picked up that way. Mm-hmm. Other people go other ways. It's, um, I guess it's not easy because I guess everybody would be doing it if it was, I suppose. Yeah, yeah I know sort of people sort of launch um, their own books via Amazon. Though. I mean, they don't necessarily right. need a publisher now, do, do you? No, so. self-publishing is huge. And there, there are lots and lots of authors doing it now. And I think even just a few years ago, people would still say, oh, I don't know about that. But it does especially for authors who are traditionally published. Um, I think it can be a really great avenue for them if it's something that maybe is outside of what they normally do. Mm-hmm. Maybe they want to write in a different genre or for a different age group compared to what they are doing normally. Yeah, It can be great for those people. And it's, it's fun, I think, because you can just put a book together yourself quite quickly. And as long as you have got a good editor and you're able to, or you're able to know what you're doing with it I think you know it's great for a lot of people yeah yeah I, I, must I admit, haven't done it myself well but... I, I've, I've only contributed to um to one book actually a, a published okay. book and I've got I've got a, a chapter um in a book and uh, it was um it was a charity book actually it was called um you and who else um oh, yeah and all I think I've all the um all the um proceeds that went towards the Terence Higgins Trust Oh, how wonderful! So, um, yeah, I, it was all. And what they're asking for was um, things about sort of TV you watched when you were a kid, sort of things you <sighs> remember watching. And I picked something called Badger Bar Owlight. Okay, and, I and don't it, remember that. Well, not many people do because um, it's never been repeated and it's never been put on DVD either. Okay. So, so it really was like dim memory, and it was a horror. Horror supernatural oh, thing, which, which I was allowed to stop and, um, and watch. <laughs> so so I put my first draft in, um, and the guy who's, who's editing it, Joe Savo, who does this, um, the uh, Strangers in Space podcast now, actually, um, big plug for Jr. There, um, he sent 
sort of like he was editing um, the book and he sent he sent back okay can you change this and change that and I now I must admit my initial reaction was how dare he <laughs> <laughs> but I could once I started rewriting I could see exactly what he was talking about yes exactly I, you I, need I, I was, a good editor exactly exactly so when you when you had your sort of first editor's notes come back I mean, what, <laughs> that was my reaction what was your reaction <laughs> Do you know what I was kind of lucky because I'd already been an editor so I was um, an editor for Harlequin Mills and Boom for a couple of years I was yeah. a freelance editor so I got to be that person red penning somebody else's work and I was taught very well by them on exactly how to edit um kindly and efficiently and it should never be personal it's always about you're all working towards the same goal so you mm. should listen to your editor unless they, they've really missed the point of something and you need to explain it to them they're there they're on your team yeah they're there to, everybody's working towards the same thing so even if you might get something and think oh oh i don't agree with that at all that's nonsense it's important to walk away from it and like you were saying come back and then look at it again and think actually how does this enhance my story what have I missed what did I do wrong because it's really hard to self-edit and I think yeah when you've been an editor you do naturally edit your own work which is, is helpful for the editors that are going to pick up your work after you because it yeah. means that you should have hopefully ironed out all the stuff that shouldn't be there but they can always think of things that you can't because you can't see the wood for the trees with them a lot of the time exactly you know, my editor on the Dr. Hubert made my story so much better oh right so. okay okay so I mean um again sort of like what you you obviously you've had the experience now just to sort of like okay yeah I can see that and you know it was I wouldn't say it was easy with all my books I think the first <laughs> one basically wrote itself I was with my first story which was the horror um about a spooky doll that yeah. had kind of come out um my nan had passed away and we'd been clearing out our house and we'd found this kind of I don't think it was China, but there was this old sailor doll that she'd had for, for years and years that none of us had ever seen before. And it was really creepy. And I kept looking at it and the, the commission came in to write a story. And every time I looked at it, I thought there's a, there's a story in this horrible oh, doll. I just need to write yeah. about the doll because it's really creeping me out. Was and it that's one of those strange sort of porcelain headed Dolls. Yes, with like um, a sailor's outfit. It was horrible. Oh. I don't know. We don't know where she got it from. It was like a, a commemorative boat doll or something. It was horrible. Um, she probably really loved it, but it really I've still got it. I've kept it because it inspired my book. But I, I was able to put everything into that story. So the story wrote itself and it didn't need many edits. Um, and I think my second one didn't need either, but my third one needed a lot. It needed a complete rewrite wow. at the, uh, quite late on as well for a few reasons. But um, it was quite a political story as well. So that probably didn't help. I didn't really make it easy for myself. Is, and that was it, quite a fight. I was going to say, I was going to say, interesting, is my next question. Is it quite a fight? Did you... Have you ever sort of dug your heels in and said, no, I'm not going to change that bit? <laughs> Never. I wouldn't because um, they wouldn't point something out unless they, if there was a really good reason for it. Hmm. No, and no editor no. should really do that. I mean, I have heard stories that people sometimes feel that way. Um, I'm lucky that I've never had that experience. I just, it, it's, it's, again, you get really attached to your story and it's a really important learning curve that you kind of learned. I think something my tutor, uh, the amazing Lou Kensler, who's a children's author, she was my tutor at the City Lit. Yeah. And she always reminded us, you have to kill your darlings when you're writing. And the thing you're most precious about is probably the thing you're going to have to lose. And there's yeah. a really good reason for that usually is because you can't see the wood for the trees with it. And it usually makes for a better story if you just chop something. It is good for you. It teaches you to kind of let go of the reins a bit. Exactly. exactly. So I was going to say, have, have you, well, you've had to let go of a certain sort of plot strand or a character? I did have to in my third 
um, YA book, which is a book called Silent Nation, which I wrote um, before Brexit and before yeah. Trump. And I'd kind of envisioned this sort of almost like Soylent Green kind of future. It was all my like 70s and 80s sci-fi influences coming forward. Yeah. And I'd written it about how I thought things might go um, in politics. And I was really scared about that. And the, the story I'd originally written didn't really... I think work for the publisher in terms of the actual outcomes of what would happen to the characters. So they, we had to do a bit of to and fro about how that would work. Um, and it was quite a short turnaround as well. So I think there were some small fights, but not in an unpleasant way, just in that we have to work this out for the, yeah. for the benefit of the story. Have you ever t- have you ever sort of reused or not say reused, but um, where you've had to cut a, something from one book, have you sort of like incorporate into, into another? Instead? Not so far, but um you always this that thing you never really lose something nothing's ever really gone so if you've had a really great character or a really great moment that you completely chop from something and it, it doesn't exist in any form at all in that story yeah it's always good yeah. to hang on to it because it will turn up later so if i funnily enough i had when you were asking earlier about um doctor who ideas i still have somewhere on a whiteboard um an outline of a book i had written that i wanted to write for for matt smith's doctor yeah and i tried to use some of that in my current story and they said oh no no that doesn't quite work for that but it's like, i'll get it in there one You'll day get it in there one day yeah <laughs> one day one day that story will happen so um one of the things i was going to ask you actually we, we sort of hear stories of just how difficult it is for women to get into into television or, or films yeah. or, or to be accepted in, in in those sort of those sort of genres mm. is it is the same true of, of writing as well or, or is that an easier medium to oh it's a difficult one because i know so many female writers They're, we're everywhere um yeah. it depends on who you ask and it depends there's there are Oh, there's so many. Most of my city lit class was female. Um, I, for, for books, I don't know so much. Um, television's changed. I started working in TV when I was about 19, so quite a long time ago now, back in the, the mid-90s. Yeah. And at that point, um, I think it's really fair to be to be honest about the fact that the women that worked in the company that I worked at, we were all secretaries or assistants. Nobody really had any huge positions of power there apart from my managing director who was absolutely amazing. Mm. And she'd really worked hard to um, be in that role and to be taken seriously. And I think quite a lot later they started hiring women more in positions of power, but all the heads of entertainment and drama and things, they were all men of a certain age and of a certain kind. So um, I think it's certainly changed since then, or I hope it has. What was it? Was it sort of like there's a smell of pipe smoke and tweed, was it? it there really was, because yeah. everybody was still smoking in offices back then as well. So yeah. my boss would be smoking all day long. Um, it was like that, and it was it was hard to be taken seriously as, um, as anything really then. And I, I used to write back then. I was starting to write books and poetry and stuff back then, and, yeah. and I remember them saying, oh, you know, we, we wouldn't really look at that. They wouldn't take my ideas seriously at that point even though they had somebody in-house who wrote. They're they're no longer around that company. They've changed. I'm sure sure if they were around now, they'd be different. I'm sure they'd be very different now. But But, they were very old school. Yeah. I mean, at the time, how did that make you feel, though? Because, I mean, um, now now it's, you know, companies or, you know, a a lot more, and quite rightly so, open to everybody pitching in ideas and and contributing. Um, But at the time... You know, we, we, as, you, as you said, women were—it's mainly PAs or secretaries or, yes. or whatever. Um, I was very young then, so that was my first job. I didn't go to uni. I decided I wanted to go and work instead, so I went straight into a television production company, basically as an, an, a receptionist and a runner. Yeah. And that was my first job, very badly paid. I think I was on eight grand a year or something like that at the time. And so the, the, you kind of just um, go along with it because you want the opportunity. 
at the time but I think I knew probably fairly soon that if I was going to do anything it wasn't going to be there and I'd have to move out of that company to to try and find a way somewhere else and I actually decided not to write for a while I think I I stopped deciding that writing would be a career and I would have Mm. to find another way to have writing in my life which I did eventually um But I think it does. I think when you're that age as well, especially then, it's difficult to be able to compare it to now because obviously people that are that age now have a very different um, upbringing, different experience from what we had back then. So that was before internet and everything like that. So we, you couldn't even see, you wouldn't know that everybody else was having the same experience. No, exactly, exactly. It was very much of a. I say it was it was like a silent world really then, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, nobody. And you just what, did, and it was. Yeah. And it was always such a. It was always. Um, I was always reminded at that point as well, which is again, it's a bit of a class thing. But I was always reminded in that job that I didn't have a degree, mm. and I was from East London, so I sort of had to know my place a bit because they were they were just very old fashioned. I don't have any ill will towards it. They were just stuck in their ways. I think yeah, at the time. exactly. Well, I don't you, think it would happen in the same way now. No, I, I was remember my my sort of first um, job. It was a um, as a city messenger. I mean, I mean, the internet mm. has killed that off. You know, there were people writing yes. letters across. London Um, but the the first funny enough you just reminded me actually the first job I was offered was actually at the stage newspaper oh of course yeah um as like an office junior but I turned it down because the pay was so bad it's dreadful wasn't it yeah they got away with paying us back yeah um because I think by the time I took out my train fare and and buying lunch and stuff I'd I'd have and paying my parents housekeeping um I'd had nothing left but part part of me kicks myself for not taking it because that would have been a foot in the door basically yes and that's then that's when that's exactly what happened to me in my head because I started doing media at um college and stuff with an idea that that's what I would do in the long run then I dropped out and went to work instead because I realized I just needed to start earning and I could learn on the job yeah. in the same way but I remember I got offered two jobs um it would have been like 96 or something like that yeah. and I was very young and I got offered one job at Zomba Music who were out in Halsden or Wilsden I think yeah. and I got offered this other job for a tv company in Soho and I literally picked the one in Soho because it was nearer to where I lived, so the fares were less. Yeah, and that was why I picked it because they were both eight thousand pounds a year, which was terrible money. But you, when you're that age, you think, "Oh, I'm earning." So oh, I'm no, learning. exactly. My first ever. So you take it. I'm rich. <laughs> yeah, you do. You get your little yeah. brown packet, and you're oh, fantastic. But uh, I think you know the stuff that you put up with, and I'm yeah. sure it still happens now. I'm sure everyone's still working on the equivalent amounts for. Oh, for I, not much I, in return I, I now. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt. I think my, mine was uh, five thousand pounds a year. Plus luncheon vouchers. <laughs> oh wow, luncheon! We didn't get those. <laughs> yeah, I just okay. I got the privilege of getting everybody else's lunches. Oh, oh yeah, cool, yeah, of course, yeah. Oh dear. But yeah. I think you do learn, don't you? And I, I, I would, you know, I wouldn't change that job because it taught me about. I got to learn about television production and distribution yeah. and rights and lots of things that I wouldn't have learned about any other way. And I got to learn it from some people that were very well known in television at the time. So. Yeah. I think, I think that, that's the important thing is as long as you come away, you've had you've, you've yes. taken something positive away with you. Yes. Yeah. And I still use techniques now that, that my boss then taught me. She was amazing. I still use, you know, my admin and my tax returns and things are all done the way she taught me. And I'm still much tougher on things. You know, if I get a late payment, I'm quite tough about it. And I got that from her. So. Oh, well, so you, you, you learned from the best. I owe her, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I should send I mean, her a fruit basket. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Or a signed copy of the book. One of the two. <laughs> yes, that's, she'd probably love that. I probably should. Yeah. So, I mean, what encourage, or sort of words of wisdom could you give to people who, who want to sort of get into writing, any aspiring writers who, who might be listening? To want to write in general or who want to write for who? Well, just write in general. Did you sort of break into that world? I mean, um, what advice would you, would you I give? Would if, say... if, any, if any, really. 
the first thing that you need to, if you if you want to write stories you should read stories and that's I can't get that into people enough is that you have to read you have to know what kind of storyteller you are and what kind of stories you want to tell mm. and you have to see what is out there and who's already doing things that you might want to do and see what kids are reading feel right for kids see what they're reading feel right for adults you don't need to know what they want to read so reading is important and you should love reading I think anyway to write you kind of have to have a love for it because there's not really any other reason to do it <laughs> um so that's important if you want to write for for television or film it's kind of the same thing um but the most important thing is to write just to keep writing there's so many people I speak to that say oh I really want to write and they say well when did you last write and they say I haven't written for 10 years and you think well right you've got to start writing just to see how you feel about it yeah not even if you're any good at it you just have to to get into the habit of writing so it becomes more natural and you just get better and better and better at it you have to write all the time so who, who did so you, that's the first bit of advice that's the first bit of advice um I'd, I'd say just came back to what you said about you know you have to be sort of a, really a reader to, to be a writer yes. what, what did what did you read when you when you were a child <laughs> this is i'm not sure if this is a podcast for children um I read what I shouldn't have been reading, actually, because when we were small, there really weren't many um, types of children's books. There were picture books and then there were classics like Blyton and stuff like that. And then there weren't any young adult books, really. So when I was a kid, I read basically everything I could get my hands on or anything that was in the house. So I was reading um, Steinbeck probably six or seven because my dad had all of them yeah i was reading stephen king and james herbert under 10 i think when i probably definitely shouldn't have been reading james herbert when i was under 10 no no Um, but i was it it must have been the rats it must have been it was the rats and and, and they were obviously the books were set not too far away from where i lived at the time so that was quite scary so that was pretty terrifying but i think what that does is it it develops your vocabulary anyway but it, it it gives you such a great understanding of of how far you can go with your story and the kinds of stories you can tell yeah. i was into um well i was raised on enid blyton um for my sins which is you know as an adult you have to really look at them and think wow wow you know there's so many awful things about them that, that, that are not okay but <laughs> yeah, i was yeah she still knew how to write a good adventure which is something i think that's where my adventure love comes from with stories it comes from her yeah um i basically read anything i could and i would I had my little four pink library tickets and I would go and use them up and get four books out and take them home, read them and bring them back the next day. And then I had to get on to using my mum's yellow tickets because she had more for the adult. You got seven, I think. Oh, well, so you had quite, quite an appetite for... for... I, I was yeah. always in the library as a kid. I, I, if I could be in the library, I would, yeah. basically. I, I loved books. Probably film and books were my two first big loves, I think. So what about films then? Well, what's, what's your... Um... What, what, what sort of genre? Because you, you like your horror as well, don't you? I love my horror. Um, yeah. The first film I ever saw, I can never tell you that I saw at the cinema was Empire Strikes Back, which I will never forget. And I saw Dark Crystal at the cinema as well. Oh, um, they were the amazing. two films. Yeah. That film's incredible. Um, yeah. And they shaped very much what kind of storyteller I wanted to be. Certainly Dark Crystal did. Yeah. Um, I always loved horror as a kid as well. I loved reading horror. Um, only if I was allowed to watch any horror, which I shouldn't have been. No, I, I loved I, it. I was going to say, because one of the... I, I, I love a certain type of, of horror, mm. and I'm very much into the sort of the old Universal RKO and Hammer. Yeah, type I love of, the, the old Hammer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am. I like a psychological horror, and I like a classic horror. I'm not really a slasher horror fan. No, me That's neither. Not my kind of thing. No. So I'm not really good with the, like the '90s horror. Um, 80s horror I love I will watch 80s horror and science fiction till I die basically I love them <laughs> um, and there's we're having a great wave of horror right now there are so many great indie horrors around at the moment yeah 
Yeah, I'll, I'll never quite got into like the whole, to... um saw and and and. No, me neither. I, I understand when they have a place, and they're like really that. well done. Yeah, but they're just not for me. Um, but I go to Fright Fest every year now, which is a, a big four or five day horror event in central London. They, yeah. the, the horror there is fantastic. You just have you just immerse yourself in it for several days. It's like a great holiday to go to. It sounds great. I mean, you must meet some really interesting people. Yeah, you do. Like so there's just like, you do, and you know the horror community are kind of like the dot community. They're just really lovely. They're just yeah. great. It's just like going home. You can just chat to anyone about it, and everyone's really nice. Um, we're all into the same stuff. Everyone's friendly. Kindred you do good, and then, yeah, yeah, you do. And I think I think genre um, love does that to you. I think. Yeah, I th- I think more than it other does. things. Yeah. Yeah, and, and until the infighting starts. <laughs> until the infighting. It's kind of like the same with the music community. I grew up with um, the grunge community. That was that was my bit. I've always loved music, but I yeah. think the, the focal point for me was when I sort of hit 15 yeah. and I got into grunge. So I was a big Pearl Jam, Faith, and all those kind of those kind of bands. Yeah. And that community, again, at that age, is it's really important to you. And I, I, that's still my, my music community now. I don't think you, you you never really sort of grow out of it, do you? No, you don't. And that, though I did yeah. read about this once, and it's what the music you hear at that point it affects you in a completely different way to the music you hear at any other point. Yes, that's why you can listen to something now that you heard when you were twelve and just start crying because it's, it affects you exactly at that it point. Sort of takes you back, whether you're sort of like, yeah, you, you were sort of yeah, it was that happier, carefree existence you have. That's right. Pressure of work and mortgages and tax returns, tax returns and Brexit <laughs> and God knows what. So yeah. edits, <laughs> edits, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. So, um, but coming back to what you what you what you read, and uh, considering mm. the um, bringing it back round to the uh, the target book, of course, so, the target, the target. Yeah, did you sort of because that's the one thing that really got me into reading were, were the, the target. Yeah, so many people say that, especially um, men say that actually, which I think is is so lovely. You hear so many men say that I didn't really like any other books, but these books I loved, which is yeah. it's there's such a special place for it. Um, I got into the targets a little bit later actually. I didn't have any targets until the seventh doctor's era and that's mm. when i first got them and i think the happiness patrol was one of the first targets i got if not the first either that or paradise towers yeah would have been my first one and i can clearly remember i used to go and stay with my dad at weekends and he was a dodgy watcher too that's probably how we ended up watching it yeah um and i can remember going to this this event and there was like a bookstore and they had a whole stack of targets and i could only get a couple because i only had my pocket money and i remember getting i'm sure it was happiness patrol or paradise towers from that that was probably the first one i had so oh, I read wow. those, and I've collected them more since then. So much more as an adult, to me. Yeah, yeah, same here actually. Because um, I mean, of course, I mean that period that was, you know, it's before VHS even, you know, and, yes. and, and certainly that was how you rewatched it. It was, it was, or or watched them for the first time. I know. I mean, these these people don't know how lucky they are today, I know. to be able to just pop it on and watch it. You know, we had to, we might never see it again. Precisely. That that's that's how I felt. But I think. Um, to, to me, though, I think reading the book first, because um, you could do anything with the book. You, there's there's no cap on the budget. No. On a book in a book, is there? And it's when no. you, oh, it's when you sort of finally do see it late, late in later years, or you've got that memory of the book, then you see what what they could afford to do on the television. I always it's, it's, it's quite a contrast sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, they're lovely, and the covers were so special. They're just oh, I love them. I had a little look at them today, actually. I put my um, my Target book copy up on the top to, to sit with them. And I was like, look, I'm putting them all together. You get quite emotional about it. I just, I just oh, think they're wonderful. very special. You know, I would I would fight to the death to keep those. I won't let anybody steal mine. 
I, I, I don't not. blame you. I'll be doing exactly the same things. <laughs> I don't have anywhere near as many as some people. I know, I know people that have nearly all of them. Some people have some absolutely incredible collections of beautifully oh, preserved books. God, yeah, I know someone who, who will only collect first edition target books. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. And, he's and expensive tra- too. Very expensive. But yes, yeah, he's got quite a collection going. I'll give him that. He's, he's, him. he's stuck to his guns. He really is. So uh, that's, uh, that's an amazing thing. It really is. And then we have the new ones to add to them, which I really love. I love that they've brought back um, the idea of target and they've, they've dabbled, haven't they, with a couple. I've got, I think I've only got the day of the doctor one so far. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I've, they I've, look fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I've, um, for, you know for the podcast we're sort of working away through some of the yeah the, the, you know the target books um because myself my co-host paul we we both again i think we, we both sort of grew up with that thing of um we used to get them out of the library yes all the time you know um, with their plastic covers exactly yeah oh lovely it's That's weird what... when you open one isn't it and there's no little library stamp i might get a little library stamp to put on the inside of the target <laughs> card back Oh, that would be a fantastic touch, actually. That's what they should have added. That would have been wonderful. Yeah, it is weird because that is how we, I think, especially because, you know, unless you had a bookshop near you, unless you had a WH Smith near you or a Menzies or something, you couldn't get one. And, you know, we probably don't have all the, they weren't actually very expensive. They were like 70, weren't they? Something something like that. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose if you... It was a treat if you had your own. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if if you had enough pocket money to buy one. Yeah, fantastic. Heaven forbid that you'd get a VHS. Goodness, no. Oh, no, no, no. That was like gold dust. <laughs> well, I didn't have any, actually, again, until like, in my late teens. I didn't. And I came across a collection of them in a charity shop one day and said, right, I'll have these. And I think the first one I got was the big box set of Planet of the Spiders, yeah. which is like a doorstop. Oh, God, yeah, um, isn't it? Great I don't have them. I've only got a couple of them now because I replaced them on DVD and yeah, just didn't I... think I should keep the VHSs. What an idiot. I know I got rid of all my VHS. So I think the first VHS wow. Doctor Who one I bought was uh, Day of the Daleks. Ah. And, th- and then the next one I bought was Planet of the Spiders, funnily enough. so Because yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm, I'm a Pertwee fan. I'm a big Pertwee fan. So. Of course. Yeah, he was my... He, Who my, isn't, though? Yeah, well, he, he was my first... Um, regular listeners to the show, the show will get so bored of me telling this story, but he's my... First memory of watching Doctor and the first memory of watching television full stop was... Oh, how lovely. Yeah, it was um, The Green Death, actually. Ah, that's a lot of people's, isn't it? I think... Yeah. It's not a big favourite of, I think, of, of Mark Gatiss's as well, The Green Death, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's got such a... For Doctor it's got such a, 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 a maudlin ending... Really. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of you know, it's, it's, it really is the end of an era. Yeah, uh, with, with that story with Joe leaving and units slowly yeah. being phased out as well. And it's not know. happy. No, it's not. It's not. But uh, but it's great, and it was it's great television. It is great it is. television. And Katie managed. We need more of that. Oh yeah, we, we need some more maudlin who. We do. Oh, wonderful, cool. wonderful. Well, Beverly, thank you so much for uh, for joining us for, the, for this podcast. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. It really has. It really has. It's, so, been, it's been lovely to talk about it, actually. I think the whole time since the book has been in prep, I've been thinking, God, am I going to have to talk to anyone? I have really high anxiety, so I was like, oh, no, I don't want to talk to anyone. But <laughs> it's lovely. It's really oh. nice to talk about who. It's lovely. Oh, excellent. I'm, I'm, I feel rather privileged now, actually. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're officially my first podcast that I've really? ever been on as well. Yeah. Oh, well done. Well done. So, well, you, yeah, well, there, was, there were no nerves there, Beverly. You did fantastic. So Excellent. The, 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 no, I was about to say the whiskey help, but I haven't got any, really. I'm joking. <laughs> Well, everybody, the uh, Doctor Who Target Storybook is uh, available now in all good online and high street retailers. And uh, (laughs) get out there and buy it.
So we're all going to say, thank get you. there and buy it. So Beverly, once again, thank you so much for uh, coming thank on. Thank you. And, uh, and I hope everyone enjoys it. I hope so as well. Thank you. Thank you. to the Who's He podcast. Please visit our website at who's-he-podcast.co.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter at who's underscore he underscore podcast. And please also join the Who's He podcast Facebook group. The Who's He podcast is a member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. Mm-hmm.